we're all cultivating the gardens and grounds, the buildings, and our own grass-roofed hermitages in some way. So I'd like to share some more stories of the ancestors, and I hope you find them as inspiring, maybe amusing, maybe challenging as I do, but mostly inspiring. So I'd like to share more about Ling Zhao, who I spoke about before. Another koan that features her. And I also want to explore some additional aspects to the foundations of mindfulness that we've been working with this week. So any of this may be some helpful fuel at this point in our session. There may also be some teachings of Dogen. Actually, there'll be a lot of teachings of Dogen in there. So Ling Zhao, one of the women ancestors, and a lay woman ancestor, she was born in the year 762 CE. Her name meant spirit shining, spirit shining. Her father was originally a successful merchant, was well-educated, and he studied widely. He studied the Buddhist sutras as well as many other subjects, and his wife, Mrs. Pong, who will forever remain historically nameless other than Mrs. Pong, shared his interests. They had two children, Ling Zhao and her brother, whose name was apparently Gang Huo. Ling Zhao was 18 when her father went on a hermitage retreat for several weeks. And when he came back, he was clear that this material comfort that they had may put them in spiritual peril. So he decided to take all their possessions and sink them in a lake. And apparently Mrs. Pong and the children went along with this in some stories, they stayed with Ling Zhao's aunt. Nobody mentions how she felt about that. But Layman Pong kept going to see his teacher. He ended up seeing a couple of teachers, Dharma teachers, and coming home, whereas Mrs. Pong and Ling Zhao studied and practiced at home. So in this story, Layman Pong was about to go off again to see his Dharma teacher. And Ling Zhao wanted to go too. During this time, it was not exactly common for such a thing to happen. So he needed some convincing. And this is from Sally Jiko Tisdale's book, Women of the Way. When Pong announced that he was leaving again, she recited to him the words of the Vimalakirti Sutra. She said, I have looked for the essential qualities of men and women and cannot find them. She quoted with perfect equanimity. The Buddha said that no one really is a man or a woman. Such things neither exist nor do not exist. So I'm coming too. This was unexpected. He decided to test her again. What does this old saying mean? Bright, bright are the grasses in the meadow. Bright, bright is the ancient teaching. She said, such a wise man. And yet you talk like that? She answered. He grunted, huh? Well, how would you say it? Bright, bright are the grasses in the meadow. Bright, bright is the ancient teaching. Pang had no answer then. She threw his teaching of formlessness at him and he caught it. She knew he would have to let her come along.
So here it is in koan form. Ling Zhao's bright and clear, the main case. While sitting, Layman Pang asked his daughter Ling Zhao, a teacher of old said, bright and clear are the 100 grasses. Bright and clear is the meaning of the ancestral teaching. How about yourself? Ling Zhao said, how could someone who's mature and great say such a thing? Layman Pong said, how would you say it? Ling Zhao said, bright and clear are the 100 grasses. Bright and clear is the meaning of the ancestral teaching. And Layman Pong laughed. The commentary. Samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. There is fundamentally no difference between them. Mountains, rivers, the great earth, and one's own self, where is the distinction to be found? This being the case, why is everything divided into two sides? Where dragons and snakes are intermingled, even the sages cannot see into it. When going against and in accord with it, vertically and horizontally, even the Buddhas cannot speak of it. The capping verse. The 10,000 things are the true Dharma. The 10 directions are one reality. Don't you know? The Dharmakaya is not like anything. Can you feel the playfulness between these two practitioners? Can you feel the confidence in Ling Zhao, in her father, to appreciate her clear seeing, her shining spirit, and their shared love for the Dharma What is he doing? Well, he's testing her. But like any good attorney would tell you, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. But thankfully, Zen is not set up like that. You ask a question and anyone can surprise you. Indeed. The women practitioners of history have had to be very creative to practice. We are so fortunate now. When Layman Pong asks, how would you say it? This is a common question in these ancestor stories, perhaps from a teacher, perhaps from a student, perhaps from Dharma peers. It may be a challenge. It may be a playful invitation. It may be a genuine request for help seeing. We all need help seeing. We can't see the back of our head very well. It's nice when someone can see the tag on our shirt sticking out, or if our rock suit is all messed up in the back, or if we have toilet paper on our shoe, or if we need help with the Zen forms. Seeing is one thing. We also have to function. We have to speak. How would you say it? So what is she doing? Well, she's justifying her accompanying him with the words of the Dharma, using another famous lay practitioner's words, Vimalakirti. She uses these teachings of the ancestors to show what is true right here, now, and to get her way. But it is certainly more than that. She speaks. But why does she criticize his words? 
And yet she seemingly says the same words. What are they talking about? Koans are like a conversation through time. I guess in this way, they're timeless. The stories of our ancestors grow up around the teachers, people who have these interactions or experiences. Someone writes about them, uses them as teaching tools. And then other teachers come along and they comment on them. They write verses about them. They join the conversation. It's audience participation. But there are lots of layers. There's lots of layers in every word, layers of meaning. We spoke before about how grass is often a metaphor for ignorance, for aversion, for the proliferation of thoughts like weeds. This koan is referring to some other conversation, some other koan about finding a place where there is no grass for a thousand miles. Conversations about grass that grow back, that go back all the way to the first ancestor in China, Bodhidharma. So when you arrive new to the koan conversation, there's lots of inside jokes and you kind of have to dig around a little bit to find out what they're actually talking about. But they're talking about our life. They're talking about our practice. Have you gotten tangled in the weeds in your practice? That's what they're talking about. It's not new. It's right here. This koan, Ling Zhao speaks. She speaks. Many koan stories include students freezing up. They're asked to speak. They're asked a pointed question or there's some very important thing that needs to happen. Somebody better say something and they don't say anything. And then they might get hit with a stick or... But that freezing up is understandable. The Dharmakaya is not like anything. The Dharmakaya, as we... Fuho mentioned, is another word for Buddha nature. It's not like anything. How can it be described? Once we say anything about it, it's fixed, fused, wrong. Once we say anything about anything, the map is not the territory. How can you say anything that's true? But she speaks, and she speaks confidently. How would you say it? Who could speak for her? Who could hear for her? Who could practice for her? See from her view? This life is to be lived. And in living, who is stepping forward? Who is speaking? Who is saying a word? How can speech and action be truly genuine? So there's a way that there can only be mistakes, and that's exactly perfect. And that is participating in life. All of life is participating, and we're all sharing in the dance. So here's a teaching from Dogen to weave its way through this talk today. 
It really crystallizes what we are deeply practicing here. It is about steadfastness of thorough investigation. Thoroughly practicing, thoroughly clarifying is not forced. It is just like recognizing the shadow of deluded thought and turning the light around to shine within. The clarity of clarity beyond clarity prevails in the activity of Buddhas. This is totally surrendering to practice. To understand the meaning of totally surrendering, you should thoroughly investigate mind. In the steadfastness of thorough investigation, all phenomena are the unadorned clarity of mind. You understand that the three realms of desire, form, and formless are merely elaborate divisions of mind. Although your knowing and understanding are part of all phenomena, you actualize the home village of the self. This is not other than your everyday activity. Actualizing the home village of the self it's perhaps like the grass-roofed hermitage, a grass hut made of the weeds of our sensations, thoughts, and emotions. We actualize the home village of the self wherever we go. All phenomena are the unadorned clarity of mind. Although your knowing and understanding are part of all phenomena, you actualize the home village of the self. It includes everything. Nothing left out. Our everyday activity, washing dishes, paying bills, falling in love, picking up dog poop. Perhaps another way to say it is, in going and returning, we never leave home. How would you say it? If we're not participating, if we're sitting on the sidelines, if we're frozen, if we're beating ourselves up, then what's going on? This is likely skeptical doubt, and it's one of the hindrances. The five hindrances are among the four foundations of mindfulness, which we've been working with. Which four? What we're calling body, feeling tones, mind states, and dharmas. In this case, we define dharmas as essentially categories of phenomena. So the hindrances are listed among the dharmas. Also listed among the dharmas are the seven factors of enlightenment, which I will mention a couple of those. They could be their own sashin, and they have been. So skeptical doubt, it's important to clarify between skeptical doubt and great doubt. Great doubt is what is sometimes considered one of the three pillars of Zen, with great faith and great determination as the other two. What's doubt doing in there? Great doubt in this case is basically everything we've been practicing this session. It is the energy of inquiry, the light of inquiry itself of not knowing, of asking. This deep inquiry into source. What is this? Who am I? 
But skeptical doubt is one of the hindrances, along with craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry. Skeptical doubt is uncertainty, wavering or indecision. Sometimes skeptical doubt goes unnoticed under the radar and can totally freeze your practice. We're always checking ourselves, vacillating, trying to decide. There's a line in the book, The Life of Pi, where the author describes it this way. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. It can manifest in doubts about the teachings. Does this even apply to me? It can manifest as doubt about the path of practice. This is useless. I should be in a different monastery, that better monastery somewhere else. I should practice in a different tradition. Doubt in our ability to practice. Feeling like we're not doing it right. That it's too hard. Our comparing mind comes in. And it makes us not jump wholeheartedly in. We don't have even a chance to investigate, to see for ourselves, because we're locked up. We stop before we even begin. The inner critic speaks with such authority as if it really knows the, the whole truth. But it's just a voice. So we need this clear comprehension, awareness of what's happening to be able to see when skeptical doubt is here. That's the way to work with it, to be aware when doubt is present. But also awareness when it's not present. Important to observe it arise, exist, and disappear, to watch it leave. When we realize it's happening, and we shine this sunshine of mindful awareness onto it, it dissolves. This is a powerful practice. The Buddha says that skeptical doubt is caused by just feeding it, by giving it careless attention. So we may not even know that we're feeding it. Cynicism can sometimes be confused for intelligence. This isn't to say abandon a discerning mind or believe everything you hear, but it is letting you even get to the point of listening and considering seeing for yourself, being open to possibility. We need to be steadfast through investigation. The great doubt of investigation. Dogen again, I'll read that phrase again. Thoroughly practicing, thoroughly clarifying is not forced it is just like recognizing the shadow of deluded thought and turning the light around to shine within. The clarity of clarity beyond clarity prevails in the activity of Buddhas. This is totally surrendering to practice. To understand the meaning of totally surrendering, you should thoroughly investigate mind. In the steadfastness of thorough investigation, all phenomena are the unadorned clarity of mind. You understand that the three realms of desire, form, and formless are merely elaborate divisions of mind. Although your knowing and understanding are part of all phenomena, you actualize the home village of the self. This is not other than your everyday activity. There's knowing and understanding and there's actualizing. Actualizing your everyday activity. 
that's showing up. For that, we will need energy. For that, we will need effort. For that, we will need courage and patience. One of the seven factors of awakening is virya, energy. I want to share some writing on that from Joseph Goldstein on mindfulness in particular. Energy. One of the aspects of energy is courage. This is a quality that powerfully energizes our heart as we walk on the path. While the nature of sloth and torpor is to retreat from difficulties, the nature of courage is the opposite. Courage is energized by challenges. It is inspired by difficult tasks and even seeks them out. When courage is present, we rise to meet different challenges for the sake of what we want to accomplish. And we're not discouraged by thought of hardship or by the length of the undertaking. I, I think it's important to note that it is another of the hindrances that sloth and torpor causing us to retreat from difficulties. And that courage is an antidote to that too. So we need courage. And with energy and effort, we can remain steadfast and patient and it can be difficult to balance our energy or confusing, difficult to balance our effort. What is right effort? So he says about effort, effort can become unskillful when there is a forcing of mind, what I call efforting rather than a relaxation of mind. Effort becomes unskillful when there's some idea of gain and a mind full of expectations rather than openness and receptivity to what's already there. It's difficult to let go of our expectations, our picture of what we think this practice has to offer us, but it seems that the outcome is always different. So Joseph Goldstein goes on to tell this wonderful story about expectation. He says, I had a long and challenging experience with the misuse of effort early on in my practice. I had been meditating in India for several years and at a certain point, the energy system in the body opened into an effortless flow of light. It was easy to sit for hours at a time, and I was thoroughly enjoying this time in practice. However, circumstances dictated my return to the States for several months. And during that time, I was often anticipating my return to India and my body of light. But when I did get back to Bodh Gaya and resumed intensive meditation practice, what I experienced was not a body of light, but what felt like a body of twisted steel. Although clearly conditions had changed, for two years I struggled to get back that pleasant flow of energy. They were among the most difficult years of my practice, as I was always wanting something other than what was there. Finally, after all that time, I let go of the wanting and settled back with acceptance into what was presenting itself. And although the body of light didn't return in the same way, there was an easeful flow of phenomena arising and passing in each moment. 
I realized that I had been dragging around the corpse of previous experience, trying to reclaim something that had changed and passed. The lesson here is that we need to be mindful of how we're making an effort. If there's a strong agenda, the in order to mind, being aware in order for something in particular to happen, or if we're holding on to the object too tightly, afraid we'll lose it, then we need to open and relax the mind, softening the quality of our effort. On the other hand, if the mind is continually drifting off and there's no effort to investigate what's going on, then we need to strengthen this effort factor. And this doesn't mean we need to somehow find the perfect balance and then always remain in it. The cultivation of virya is a very refined art. We always need to see the present circumstance, then understand it with wisdom. Is the mind too tight? Is it too loose? And then make the proper adjustment. If you've had a pleasant experience or an amazing experience, it can be such a trap. Maybe if I sit just that same way, oh, I was sitting on that side of the zendo, try to recreate all the conditions. To fuel our energy, one of the wholesome fuels, the clean fuel, is spiritual urgency in which we may reflect on the precariousness of our circumstances, the fragility of our favorable conditions here. This isn't guaranteed, any of this, not for a minute. Have we not learned that yet? I think we have. I think we have. We can reflect on death can reflect on whatever you accumulate is going to disperse. And we're left with one of the remembrances and my deeds are my only companions. What will you do? Ultimately, it's good to be able to practice patience. To practice patience is to be tolerant, to forbear hardships and difficulties, but not passively. It's not just being a doormat. Patience is transformative. Patience transforms problems into wisdom, if we let it. Patience is truly meeting our circumstances. Zen teacher Norman Fisher says, patience is the most important of all the bodhisattva practices because without it, all the others will eventually fail. So one way to practice this is to just inquire. Can I do anything about it? Great, do it. Can I not do anything about it? Great, don't do it and just accept, recognize, surrender to what is. Patience has in it humility and faith. It's challenging this I, me, mine. It's recognizing the smallness of all of that. Again, this steadfastness through, of thorough investigation. Thoroughly practicing, thoroughly clarifying is not forced. It is just like recognizing the shadow of diluted thought and turning the light around to shine within. The clarity of clarity beyond clarity prevails in the activity of Buddhas.
This is totally surrendering to practice. To understand the meaning of totally surrendering, you should thoroughly investigate mind. In the steadfastness of thorough investigation, all phenomena are the unadorned clarity of mind. You understand that the three realms of desire, form, and formless are merely elaborate divisions of mind. Although your knowing and understanding are part of all phenomena, you actualize the home village of the self. This is not other than your everyday activity. Your everyday activity. Steadfast. Keep going. Even when you can't see what the results will be. Untangled from the idea of results. Here's another, let's say, part of a koan. Nanyue polishes a tile. Zen master Mazu was an attendant to Nanyue. Mazu lived in Kaiyuan Monastery and did Zazen all day long. Nanyue went to him and asked, Great monastic, what do you intend by doing Zazen? Mazu said, I am intending to be a Buddha. Nanyue picked up a tile and started polishing it. Mazu said, what are you doing? Nanyue said, I'm trying to make a mirror. Mazu said, how can you make a mirror by polishing a tile? Nanyue said, how can you become a Buddha by doing Zazen? Nanyue and Mazu had this conversation in 8th century China. And they were teacher and student. Nanyue was a disciple of our <coughs> sixth Chinese ancestor, Huineng. So he is a Dharma, great many great Dharma uncle. Incidentally, Mazu would go on to become the second of Layman Pang's Dharma teachers. So there's another connection to the Pong lineage. This koan is very profound and subtle. I am not able to truly do it justice here. There are many aspects to it and their conversation continues beyond what I've shared here. At one point in their conversation, it's said that Mazu heard this admonition from his teacher and felt as if he had tasted sweet nectar. Is this like the heavenly nectar of Orioki? When you hear an admonition, do you usually respond that way? Admonition is an interesting word. Again, in these stories, what are they doing? Teaching, challenging, admonishing, I aspire to receive admonitions like this, like sweet nectar, and I certainly do not always. When a teacher challenges you, that can be a form of spiritual friendship. It's a really good friend that'll tell you the truth. And hopefully that's built on a foundation of trust but here he is, trying to become a Buddha. And the teacher says, no, it's not all about that. It's not about clinging to the form of Zazen. You might as well try to polish a tile to make a mirror. Well, that's impossible, right? So what are we doing here then? Why are we meditating? He's saying we are already Buddha. And yet, here's the abbot of the monastery telling someone it's not all about Zazen. 
there's some, is there not some way to get this right? You come to the Zen monastery, you do Zazen all day long. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? The more the better? Isn't that the right way? But this conversation isn't just words. You can't very well go into the Sanzen room and talk about your koan. Your teacher will say, show me. And that's what Nanyue is doing. Nanyue picked up a tile, a roof tile, that was laying around the monastery. When we did our pilgrimage in China, and we stayed at some of these monasteries in China, indeed, we saw that just like here, there's piles of stuff along the backside of the monastery, you know, projects that are in process. So here are these tiles, piles of roof tiles back there. They're ceramic, so they're made out of mud. They're made out of earth, water, fire, and air, just like us. They might even be broken. And Nanyue is going to polish it until it becomes a mirror, which Fuho had spoken about the mirror as a metaphor for the one bright mind our Buddha mind. We already are this. We already are Buddha, right? And yet, we can't just sit there. We have to do something. Take action. Be in the activity of polishing a tile. It's participating, it's stepping forward, it's alive. We have to do something. We have to say something. It takes courage. It takes energy. We inherit these teachings, these forms that help us step forward. We learn a few dance steps but nobody can express it. Nobody can actualize it exactly the way we could. Nobody. The Dharmakaya isn't like anything. How can we realize what we already are? How can we verify it for ourselves? It may look a number of ways for different people. I found a teaching from Dogen, from the Shobogenzo, called On Learning the Way Through Body and Mind. Strikes me that this is exactly our practice, on learning the way through body and mind. And I'm going to share that here now. He says, There are provisionally two ways to learn what the Buddha way is, namely to learn by means of our mind, and to learn by means of our body. To learn by means of the mind is to learn by all sorts of minds. Those minds include the discriminative mind, the mind of feelings and emotions, and the mind that sees the oneness of all things among others. Also, after we have established a spiritual rapport with a master and have given rise to the mind that would realize full enlightenment, we take refuge in the great way of the Buddhas and ancestors and explore the daily functioning of the mind that seeks full enlightenment. Even if we have not yet given rise to the mind that truly aspires to realize full enlightenment, we should imitate the methods of the Buddhas and ancestors of the past who gave rise to the mind that seeks enlightenment. This mind is the mind that has resolved to realize enlightenment. It is the manifestation of a sincere heart, moment by moment. The mind of previous Buddhas, our everyday mind, and the three worlds of desire, form, and beyond form. All of these are the products of our mind alone. Sometimes we learn the way by casting aside these various minds, and sometimes we learn the way by taking them up. Thus we learn the way by thinking about these minds, and we learn the way by not thinking about them. 
He's talking about skillful means. He's talking about using everything as a teaching. And he says that if we don't yet have the mind that aspires to realize full enlightenment, then we can do our best approximation. Fake it till you make it. Use the tools the ancestors have left to us to use. He continues to describe the different ways of learning through the body, different ways to practice the Dharma life. Sometimes a kesa of gold brocade is forthwith transmitted and duly accepted. Sometimes there is Bodhidharma's saying, you have gotten what my marrow is, followed by standing in place after making three full prostrations. There is learning mind by means of mind, which is the transmitting of a kesa to the one who pounded rice. To shave one's head and dye one's robes is none other than to turn one's heart around and illuminate one's mind. To scale the castle walls and enter the mountains is to leave one frame of mind behind for another. That a mountain monastery is being entered means that whatever one is thinking about is based on not deliberately thinking about some particular thing. That the worldly life is being abandoned means that what one is specifically thinking about is not the point. To fix one's gaze upon these thoughts is comparable to two or three rounded heaps. To play around with these thoughts in spiritual ignorance is comparable to myriad thousands of sharp edges. So he's saying there are many ways to walk the path, to step on, to continue. He's talking about people receiving transmission. He's talking about becoming an ancestor. He's talking about becoming a priest or a monk or leaving the castle walls like the Buddha did. Giving our life to the Dharma. He goes on to say, when we learn in this matter what the way is, appreciation will naturally come from our making efforts, but efforts do not necessarily proceed from already having appreciation. Now that's important, the order of that. When we learn in this matter what the way is, appreciation will come from our making efforts. We first make efforts, then naturally comes appreciation. If you've ever tried brush calligraphy or playing a musical instrument, you might notice this. We make efforts and then begin to appreciate just how difficult it actually is. It looks easy when a master does it. We first make efforts, then naturally comes appreciation. We can appreciate music all day long but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll make any effort in learning how to play. So this next part, this last part, I want to share about from Dogen's teachings. Kind of has it all in it, kind of sums it all up. He says, even so, to borrow unseen the nostrils of an ancestor of the Buddha and let them expel one's breath and to use the hooves of a donkey or a horse and let them stamp the seal of one's awakening. These have been signposts of the way for tens of thousands in the past. In short, the great earth with its mountains and rivers, along with the sun, moon, and stars are the very stuff of our mind. So right at this very moment, what sort of thing is appearing before our very eyes? So what he's talking about here is apparently nostrils. They have a few different meanings. In this case, they refer to one's Buddha nature, as plain as the nose on one's face. And the hooves of a donkey refers to one's commitment to just plodding on, doing our daily training, 
cleaning up our karma day by day. The hoofs of a horse refer to one's commitment to galloping on, going wherever necessary to help all sentient beings realize the truth. It's so beautiful. Even so, to borrow unseen nostrils of an ancestor of the Buddha and let them expel one's breath and to use the hooves of a donkey or a horse and let them stamp the seal of one's awakening. These have been signposts of the way for tens of thousands in the past. In short, the great earth with its mountains and rivers, along with the sun, moon, and stars are the very stuff of our mind. So right at this very moment, what sort of thing is appearing before our very eyes. What a beautiful testament to faith, to patience, to the bodhisattva ideal, to letting go of the outcome, to just keep going. We will need this in our inquiry, patience, great determination, along with our great doubt. Let go, surrender, let go of what might happen. It's not up to you anyway. Please have faith. Let the practice transform you. Keep going. Thank you.